This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Pancreatitis by Dr. Amit Grover. Today, I will review a case about acute pancreatitis. Grover is a five-year-old boy admitted with abdominal pain from an outside hospital earlier today. An etiology for his abdominal pain has not yet been identified. You are the GI resident on call overnight, and you receive a page from the nurse that Grover is having persistent pain and emesis. She also notes that his heart rate seems to be elevated. As you hear this, you should be thinking of your differential diagnosis. While the differential of abdominal pain is broad, in the context of pain, emesis, and tachycardia, you should be thinking about sepsis, hypovolemic shock, acute pancreatitis, and a surgical abdomen. Of note, acute pancreatitis often presents acutely, but you can also have a gradual and variable presentation. Not all children will have typical epigastric pain with emesis. Some might just have emesis, or others might have solely a fever with irritability. The most challenging patients are those who are nonverbal and cannot convey pain. For this reason, acute pancreatitis should be on the differential for any child with abdominal pain, emesis, persistent irritability, or even feeding intolerance. On the phone, you should ask the nurse for the following. Vital signs, heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, and temperature. If febrile, then you should have a heightened concern for sepsis. If they're in respiratory distress, you should also think about an effusion. Tachycardia should make you consider pain, dehydration, or even anemia from blood loss. Is the patient making urine? Are they toxic in appearance? Once you arrive in the room, always remember your ABCs. After this, ensure that the patient is on a monitor and has IV access. Ensure oxygen is hooked up. Personnel in the room may initially just be you and the bedside nurse but with a glance at the monitor and the patient, you can assess if you'll need extra hands like the charge nurse or even a clinical assistant. On physical examination, let's focus by systems. On general appearance, do they look ill? Do they look toxic? What is their sign of hydration based on their mucous membranes? From a neurologic perspective, are they in severe pain? Is their pain controlled? Are they responsive? Do they have an altered mental status? In a pulmonary exam, is the patient tachypneic? Could they have an effusion? Do they have diminished air entry or increased work of breathing? On cardiovascular exam, are they tachycardic? On the abdominal exam, does the patient have distension, edema, or bruising? A gray Turner sign is often a late sign of pancreatitis. If there is family in the room, some of the information you want to gather related to a possible diagnosis of acute pancreatitis includes finding out if there is any possible trigger for the episode. For example, were any new medications such as seizure medications started? Did they have any history of trauma or intercurrent viral infections or even toxic exposures? Knowing whether the patient has had pancreatitis in the past or if there is a family history for pancreatic or even liver disease such as cholelithiasis will be useful. It's important to ask the family if the patient recently has had any procedures, specifically if this is a post-ERCP patient. You'll want to ask what was done during the procedure. Did they have a sphincterotomy? Was there any ductal dilation? Was a stent placed? 
you can also ask if antibiotic prophylaxis was given. It's important to understand the onset of pain and symptoms and whether the patient is able to maintain hydration, as dehydration secondary to third spacing can happen very rapidly and lead to hypovolemic shock quickly. Let's take a quick minute to discuss some of the most common causes of pancreatitis. More commonly, the adult experience will report that either gallstones or alcohol are the main causes. Pediatrics is different, however. While gallstones or biliary disease are a common cause, we also have to think about other etiologies, which include infectious etiologies such as viral infections, bacterial infections, or even parasitic infections, metabolic diseases such as hypercalcemia or hypertriglyceridemia. Pancreatitis can be associated with systemic diseases such as cystic fibrosis, inflammatory bowel disease, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, celiac disease, HUS, HSP, Kawasaki's disease, just to name a few. Pancreatitis can be seen in the setting of sepsis or multi-organ failure. Trauma or seatbelt or handlebar injuries or post-procedures such as an ERCP can also lead to pancreatitis. Congenital causes include an annular pancreas, a pancreas divism, or cysts. Some patients may have a genetic mutation which predisposes them to pancreatitis. Finally, medications or toxic exposures. Point of clarification. Medication-induced pancreatitis is not well studied in children. There are, however, certain classes or specific medications that are more likely to cause pancreatitis in children. Anti-epileptic medications have been associated with an increased risk of developing acute pancreatitis. Other specific types of medications include the immune modulator, 6-MP, or the ASA derivatives. Pediatric patients being treated for malignancy who receive asparaginase as part of their treatment regimen are also at increased risk of developing pancreatitis. Once you've evaluated the patient and determined that they are stable for the moment, you should consider ordering the following labs and imaging studies. If the patient is having stool output, you can send it for guaiac testing. If positive, this may suggest occult bleeding, which can be seen in the setting of trauma, intestinal inflammation, which can cause pancreatitis, or bleeding after a pancreatic therapeutic procedure, such as a sphincterotomy. Getting a CBC will allow you to assess for anemia, leukocytosis, or neutropenia, which is important in oncology patients. A chemistry panel will give you a sense of their hydration status or whether or not they're acidotic. It can also tell you if they're hypo or hyperglycemic. LFTs are important. These can be trended to see if they're worsening or if they have any evidence of cholestasis. A CRP and ESR are often elevated in acute pancreatitis and are most useful if you trend them. This will give you a sense if the patient is getting worse or better. A lactate can be sent if a patient has a rigid abdomen or you have a concern for peritonitis or ischemia. The lipase and amylase are helpful if you haven't already made a diagnosis of pancreatitis. Blood cultures are important if the patient is febrile and could be concerning if the patient has had biliary manipulation. Could they have worsening cholangitis? Could this be sepsis? Is this an oncology patient who's had pegasperginase? Finally, a urine analysis can allow you to have a specific gravity which gives you a sense of their hemoconcentration or intravascular volume. You may also consider ordering imaging. Ultrasound offers the benefit of avoiding ionizing radiation, which is often seen with CT scans. An ultrasound will tell you if there's hypoenhancement suggestive of acute inflammation, 
or if there's an absent blood flow of the splenic vein or thrombosis, or even a portal vein thrombosis. Ultrasound imaging is also the optimal study for the evaluation of gallstones or cholelithiasis when thinking about etiologies. It can also demonstrate the presence of fluid collections such as a pancreatic pseudocyst or localized collections known as walled-off necrosis. Newer modalities such as contrast-enhanced ultrasound provide information on the perfusion of the microcirculation, but not all centers are able to offer this. CT scans can give you a sense of perfusion. It should be emphasized, however, that the utility of a CT scan is very minimal early on in the course, and the yield for identifying necrosis is highest after 72 hours. Pediatric patients should not routinely receive a CT scan to diagnose acute pancreatitis unless there is a concern for abdominal trauma. MRCP can also provide information on the ductal anatomy, strictures, or pancreatic duct stones. This is important in your patient with a known history of chronic pancreatitis. This is also useful most often after the acute episode has subsided, and it also offers the benefit of limiting radiation exposure. If your initial evaluation is consistent with acute pancreatitis, or the patient held a diagnosis of pancreatitis and appears to be worsening, it is important to obtain IV access immediately and aggressively resuscitate with IV fluids. Typically, a normal saline bolus should be given first, followed by crystalloid IV fluids such as D5NS or LR at 1.5 to 2 times maintenance. Maintaining intravascular volume is essential in perfusion of the microcirculation of the pancreas. In addition, given their inflamed state, you must remember that patients are at risk for third spacing and spilling fluid into the abdomen, lungs, and extravascular spaces quickly. If patients are fluid sensitive, ensuring optimal fluid resuscitation remains a priority. However, Closer monitoring of vital signs for ensuing SERS physiology and urine output is advised. If the patient is febrile, unless a known source of infection or bacteremia is confirmed, there is no indication to cover prophylactically with antibiotics. Patients with acute pancreatitis often manifest as either mild or severe phenotypes. The majority remain mild and often show improvement after fluid resuscitation and analgesia. Initiation of enteral diet early on and advancement of diet is important. Serial laboratory studies such as repeat lipase and amylase are not often as relevant as the height of a lipase or amylase does not have a good predictive value in terms of severity. Unfortunately, there are no good pediatric predictors of severe disease currently. These patients often have a worsening and protracted course where they demonstrate persistence of SERS physiology. They often need a higher level of care or observation in an intensive care unit. If you notice that your patient has any of the following signs, these should be red flags to you that you may need to activate an ICU evaluation. Diminished urine output or more concentrated urine, such as an increasing specific gravity. Severe pain that is not controlled. Any evidence of hemodynamic instability. These patients may need more aggressive fluid resuscitation and eventually vasopressor support. If they have an altered mental status or worsening acidosis. If the patient has a distended abdomen, diminished femoral pulses, which increase concern for abdominal compartment syndrome, which may also necessitate a surgical evaluation. If a patient has severe pancreatitis, it is important to involve your gastroenterology colleagues early on. They can often provide guidance on optimal fluid resuscitation and initiation of enteral feeding. While no data exists in pediatrics, there is an abundance of literature to support the early introduction of enteral feeding in the setting of severe acute pancreatitis. 
Patients should not routinely be initiated on TPN unless discussed with a pediatric gastroenterologist. I hope this has provided you with a good understanding of pancreatitis in the pediatric patient. Thank you for watching. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.